0: I do have to say that after 30 plus years of reading this stuff professionally, this story is unlike any other that I've read.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest. And today I have a treat for you, an interview with my book editor, Glenn Stout. So this episode is coming out on Thursday, October 28th. And my book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, comes out on Monday, November 1st. And Glenn is my book editor. And working with him, as I say in the episode, was like having a masterclass in narrative nonfiction storytelling. Many of you may know Glenn as the series editor for the long running series, The Best American Sports Writing, which started in 1991 and just ended last year. And now there's a, a new iteration of it with a different publisher called The Year's Best Sports Writing and that book just came out as well. Glenn's also an author in his own right. Latest book is Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, which I can't recommend enough. In this conversation, Glenn and I talk editing, the editing process, the writing process. We talk a bit about my book and what he saw with my book, what needed improvement, what worked, what is now working well, and we talk some best American sports writing stories. Enjoy. Glenn, thank you for coming on. I feel like, A, I got a masterclass from you in narrative nonfiction and B I made a new friend so it's it's double lucky well, that's the, the
0: ideal situation you know because most of my friends uh, these days are people that I've met through writing uh, I mean I have the old friends that go back 45 years and then there's people that I've met uh, in writing mostly over like the last 15 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. um, and those are the people I talk to <laughs> almost, almost exclusively. Um, and, but I think it's important, uh, as a writer and that's something that I didn't quite, I don't, I didn't participate with other writers for a really long time, but as I got older, I kind of realized how important that was and how useful it was, um, not just in terms of your work, which it's very helpful for because you have somebody to discuss your work with, but, you know, people don't, um, always acknowledge how isolating writing can be. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in my basement, and you know, I, the story I tell all the time is when my daughter was younger, they'd ask her, what does your father do? And she was like, he talks on the phone, because of course, she never saw me doing any of the stuff that I do. Um, but it's really, really useful to have that group of people in that tribe, because it can be very, very isolating, and, uh, and you do need feedback you can trust, because you're probably not going to get it from your publisher. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, or your editor. Um, so, you know. Well, you are a fantastic editor. And so let's dive into the editing process, feedback, etc. I guess my first question is, how do you approach the editing process?
0: Um, you know, when I first started editing work, which has been about 10 years ago, uh, I decided I felt I'd never been adequately edited. Um, I've just been kind of had comments tossed at me and scratches made on pages and nobody ever really tried to teach me anything. I figured I learned this business basically on my own. Um, and I decided I wasn't going to do it like other people did it. I was going to do it the way I thought I wish somebody would have done it with me. So when I go into editing a project, um, we go soup to nuts, top to bottom, as many times as it takes. I have talked to other editors and they would tell them oh yeah some stories we've gone back and forth 12 or 15 times and their jaw drops and you know they say, well i might do it twice well that's fine but you know i'm trying to do it a different way and i'm trying to bring the writer to a place where the writer isn't going to need that much help the next time now that doesn't mean every story has to be done 10 or 15 times sometimes it is two or three But but what I try to do is when I'm given a story or a book or whatever, I go through and I comment as I read it the very first time. Questions that come up in my mind, things that I see, I, I call that a virgin read. I'm never going to have the experience of encountering the text for the first time ever again. I'm going to have one shot at it like a reader might have and what i think is important about that is particularly now that so much work is available digitally and everything is you don't want the reader to stop reading you don't want to kick the reader out of the story a little different when it was all on pages yeah you can scan back if you kind of missed something or got a little confused it's easy to scan up that page or flip that page a little harder when you're reading on your phone and you're scrolling through and I believe that if the reader has too many questions or too many stumbles, or comes across too many sentences that aren't clear or questions are raised that aren't answered, those are all invitations to leave the story. So we try to get rid of those, you know, primarily. And then beyond that, I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, I wanna make sure that the writer knows what the story is. Um, Sometimes writers will, think they know what the story is, and then they start writing, and that story's not there. Mm. Uh, their preconceived notion of what the story was, and but sometimes another story's there. Uh, the story that wants to be told, I'm convinced, is always there trying to get out, and if I can help that story get out um, and show the writer how to get it out, um, that makes the process a lot a lot easier for everybody because when you try to tell a story that's not there the entire thing is a struggle and it's false and inauthentic okay um so try to tell the story that's that's in front of you um so you know as you know you'll get a first draft from me back with you know i don't know 150 comments Mm -hmm. and you know i'll just respond And I might give you an example or two about what I mean if I say this sentence is too chewy. You know, I have my pet phrases that I use, you know, and uh, I give you a little bit of examples of this, but I try not to do a whole lot of rewriting except to give you examples. And then I also make it clear that everything I do is suggestive. It's your story. You don't have to do anything that I tell you. It's all suggestive. And quite frankly, if I make a suggestion, that might spur you to have a better response than my suggestion, which is great. That's what I want to have happen. Because I don't ever want to get to the end of a story and have a writer feel like it's not theirs anymore, that it's mine, or that it's this, you know, this other entity that evolved. It's like, well, gee, this is the story. I reported all this, but this isn't my writing. Um, No, I, you know, if your writing's not good enough, well, we'll hopefully we'll teach you how to write better in this process. And then you'll still feel that it, that it's yours. So that's how I try to do it. And uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be any fun for me. Um, I, I detest trying to give something a quick once over and
1: fix it. Mm, right. Well,
0: you know, you can't do that.
1: So that's, so that's
0: basically how I do it. And that initial read will take you know, it will take a long time. If it's a long story, if it's a 5,000-word story, that initial read might take me three or four hours. Mm. If it's a longer story, it's going to, it might take me a couple of days mm-hmm. to go through it with the level of attention and focus that I think it needs. And then every time we go back through, you know, you kind of get to other things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You start working on, on smaller, you know, issues. Um, but you know the, the, I will go back a little bit after the first time and, and maybe make some other comments because now that after I've seen it all, I can elucidate a comment that I made and you know also address if there are structural, real structural issues or something like that. Um, that's why I always follow up with a big email that kind mm-hmm. of explains everything. And then I think most importantly, I encourage dialogue between the editor and the writer. We will solve more problems talking than we will in two days of sending emails. And in my experience, some of the best breakthroughs I've had with writers, or rather they've had with their stories, have been because we've bounced ideas off of each other. And that doesn't happen when you're just dealing with each other by text. It doesn't happen if you're doing it by email or god-awful Google Docs um you know it doesn't happen that way so you know if your editor won't talk to you screw them that's yeah my and you know, that's how i feel about my <laughs> about many of my recent editors because they've never spoken <laughs> to me um so you know my estimation of them goes you know way down because you know communication hey we're in the communication business right we're trying to connect readers to our work yet we can't talk to each other that's bullshit
1: it's interesting. So the, I think we had about five big drafts where I sent you the manuscript and exactly what you're saying. You you would go through it. A few days later, I would get it back, be a whole bunch of comments. And then it was a two-part process, right? You would say, okay, read through the comments. That's part one and sit with it for a few days. And then let's have a phone conversation. And then yeah. we might have a 90-minute, two-hour phone conversation Going through everything. Um, and, and so, like that, that two part process was so helpful for me because it's first, it's here's the feedback and take it in and think about it and, and let it settle. And then let's dive into it.
0: Feedback can be overwhelming. You're getting it all at once. There's all these comments, my God, what does this guy mean? You know, but if you let it sit for a while, then it kind of clarifies for you as well. Mm -hmm. And you have time to like, Oh, now I get what he's saying. Now, now I understand what this point is, or maybe not, you know, maybe you get to, you know, I still don't know what this point is, but, but you've you've sat with it, and you're not just reacting. You know, um, we're all very protective of our work. And when somebody tells us something isn't, you know, should be done a different way we you know the initial response is always like what, what are you talking about. well, and that kind of, you know, levels that out. And then I also think the other thing is just um, through that whole process, the back and forth and the email and then the conversation is to instill confidence that mm-hmm. this is solvable and doable uh, because we're all fragile and think that we can't do things more than we can and, and that it works best if it's collaborative uh, rather than, you know, hierarchical. Um, so I try to, you know, I'm a writer too. (laughs) Right, right. I'm sensitive too. I'm sensitive too. So, you know, um, and and I think it's generally speaking over the years, it's worked with more people than it hasn't, um,
1: well, I, I mean, get on with
0: some people better than others, but you know,
1: right. You're, I mean, your your feedback, like I said, it's a masterclass in narrative nonfiction. But the but the overarching approach you took, which you just described, of, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my thoughts, I'm gonna give you my suggestions, I'm never going to insist on anything. It's your story, and I, and it, and it has to be your story and what you want. And you, you've written and published a number of books, you've edited a million stories, you've worked with the best of the best, you could pull rank anytime you wanted. And of course, that's something I don't even think is in your mindset because it, it is about supporting the other person and making sure that 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 what they want, that they're accomplishing what they want.
0: Right, it's it's not about, um, well, it's about the writer and it's about the reader, it's not about the editor. The reader doesn't mm-hmm. care how the story gets there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, The reader just wants this experience. Um, So, but the writer needs to be invested in their own work. Otherwise, you know, we're just, you know, sitting at a typewriter, you know, in random keys and you don't, you don't care about it. And, um, you know, I think it's important to, it's hard enough to do this work when you don't care about it. Uh, when you do care about it, it's even worse when you don't care about it. So, so, so let's keep caring about it, so it's actually kind of fun and enjoyable, and not this, um, uh, not trying to you know lift jello over barbed wire, um, which it can be, you know, sometimes <laughs> right. it can be like that. Um, but it, and it's fun for me, you know, it's just fun for it's more fun for me to do it that way than to
1: you know, mm.
0: be some kind of the,
1: the other way. And and you spoke earlier about that the, the writer needs to listen to the story. And of course, I've told a number of people, the best piece of advice you gave me was that the story will speak to you. If, if you're open to it, the story will tell you how it wants to be told. So as an editor, a, and as you get involved in this process and the back and forth, does the story, does someone else's story ever speak to you as you're editing it?
0: Well, that's what I'm, that's sort of what I'm listening for <laughs> mm. is Is, you know, and that all comes from, I had a professor in college, I studied poetry in college, Robert Kelly, and he always told us to really pay attention to when you make a mistake, like if you're reading aloud, and you don't read the word on the page, but you speak another word, or you thought you were writing one word, and you actually wrote another word, um, or you left a word out you know, he would say that's the the text is trying to tell you something there. If you stumble over your own words when you're reading them aloud, you don't have them right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, if if you put in a word that you didn't intend to put in there, where did that come from? Uh, And I've actually had this experience, you know, uh, probably a half a dozen times where I've used a word not knowing what it meant. And then finding out that it was exactly the right word, you know, know, because it does have its own vocabulary. And, And that comes from another poet, a guy named Jack Spicer, who said the really perfect poem has an infinitely small vocabulary. And by that, he meant that the really perfect poem, every word is the precise word that should be there. It's not fungible. It's not interchangeable. Same thing with this stuff. You can never get probably all the words just the way they are, but that's what you try to do. And that all comes from listening. And sometimes it comes directly from sound. A word sounds better, might change the sense a little bit, but it sounds right. So maybe your sense is wrong. You know, it, it's not always a question of going to the thesaurus and finding the right word sometimes it's going to the sentence and finding the right meaning that is in those words, right? Um, it kind of gets, you know, a little bit, you know, spacey, spooky, yeah. spooky but if you work with words long enough, this stuff really happens, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's one other spooky thing, and this happens in every project I work on, almost without fail, is if you're doing it right, you're doing the right research, you're putting in the time. At a certain point, information that you need, that you didn't even know you need, finds you. It's like iron filings going to a magnet. You'll be doing something totally different and some factoid will arise. And it'll almost like stands in front of you and waves its hand It says, hey, I'm here, you need me. And it happens. It happens with every project I work on. Sometimes it's just, you know, you just accidentally come across this great story that you need for this piece of research and you weren't even looking for it. You were looking for something else. Or if something comes up in conversation. So oh, did you ever read blah, blah, blah? And, you know, it just, it's crazy how it happened. never happens at the beginning of a project. It always happens at the end. It's almost like the universe is saying, okay, you've done the work to this point. Here's a freebie.
1: Mm-hmm. you know.
0: So... I try to stay open to that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's part of the, like you said, it's spacey. I use the word spooky, which comes from Norman Mailer's quote, writing is a spooky process. It's, mm-hmm. th- there that that is, because there's this technical side to writing, and then there is this spooky side to writing. And it's, it's that side that is really interesting.
0: There are tons of podcasts about writing. Right, and I always I would rag on them a little bit, even though I hear on someone because they never get down to why'd you pick that word, mm. which is like almost the most essential. But why'd you use that word, mm-hmm. and not not any of the fifty thousand other words you could have you could have used? And this gets back to to sound too, because I think the way stories become sticky in our brains is because of the way we hear them in our brains. And actually, because you can hear them. Bad writing, you can't hear. It has no sound, so it doesn't stick. It Mm. just slides right by. Good writing, you can hear. And I don't know if this is true neurologically. I suspect it is. I bet little other parts of your brain fire when you're actually hearing the words as you're reading them. Uh, and some people don't hear the words when they read, and um, I feel bad about that. Uh, they read a lot faster than I do, because over years, I am a really slow reader, but I hear all the words.
1: And that's why a turn of phrase or a poem or a sentence stays with you, stays with the reader. It's
0: exactly, and it's, it's, it's the sound of the words, it's the pace. Mm -hmm. all of that you know when we worked together you know there were times where i'd say well you could orphan this line Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or you need to put a page a a graph break in here and those are for sound you Mm -hmm. need that your brain needs that half beat to process Mm -hmm. you need that orphan because it's like we just stepped on it it's like yeah you understand (laughs) yep um you need that that half beat the process and okay then we can go on to the rest of the graph. you know that kind of stuff it's kind of internal notation uh I think a really good metaphor for the entire writing process in many ways is music because it is it is notating and I always love to tell the story of W.C. Hines the famous sports writer did an interview with Bill Littlefield and uh Bill Hines who I was fortunate enough to get to know just a little bit But he said, um, when he started a story, that was always the hardest part. He said, and he was a big classical music fan. But he said, once he got the first few chords, then it was easier. And that's absolutely true. Mm. Once you get the the chords of the story down, you've also got the time signature. Uh, You know the key. So you know what words are are sharps and flats that don't fit the key. You know the rhythms that are wrong. You know the words that are outside the story because the vocabulary of every story is different. Sometimes it's more highbrow, sometimes more lowbrow, sometimes more colloquial, sometimes more formal, whatever kind of word you want to put on it. But each one is unique. So once you get your chords down, the rest of it, flows from there and i know that there are books that i've written that um i could not proceed (laughs) until like i had written something that had the told me what the chords and the time signature and all that stuff were Mm. until i wrote that part of the book jeez i'm just i'm just scrambling here right oh this is it now i know where to go with
1: it the the musical aspect of great writing
0: yeah well you know the borders are tells you where the borders are
1: okay so you mentioned orphan lines earlier as you know i'm a fan i'm I'm probably too much of a fan of orphan lines i have a lot of orphan lines in my in my book and so you know this story but for the listeners i'd I'd written a first draft done a pass or two so i had a, a second draft and I was sitting here in New York and thinking about working on some aspect of the of the book. And I look over on my bookshelf and one of the many best American sports, I'm holding the book up for, for the camera right now, for the people listening, of best American sports writing. This is the 2018 edition. And my father and I had gifted this book to each other each Christmas for the past 25 years, probably. And it it was, as a teenager, it was one of my introductions to great writing, because great sports writing is just great writing. And I always remembered the series editor lived in Vermont, because I grew up um, until high school in Vermont. And so I just looked at the book, looked at the name of the series editor, Glenn Stout and thought, let me just Google him. And, and I don't know, maybe he'll take a look at my manuscript because I'm from Vermont, right? That's how I thought, right. uh, you know, when you're writing, when you're in the midst of writing, like you got these crazy thoughts like, oh, he's from Vermont, I'm from Vermont. Maybe you know, like, maybe we could uh, talk to each other. Well, it didn't, didn't hurt. <laughs> right, right, right. And so I sent you the manuscript and well, let me ask you this, what what were the biggest areas for improvement that you saw when you got my book?
0: Well, you had a lot of gaps, just informational gaps. I had more questions that weren't answered. So that was, Mm -hmm. was, let me go backwards a little bit. The the one thing that stood out was this is a really interesting story and he knows it from the beginning to the end.
1: Mm.
0: It's not like you were still searching for the story. You knew what the story was. That's hugely important. If you didn't know what the story was, I would have probably said, you know, I would have said nice things
1: but <laughs> <Right>. only once <laughs> um, you know so you knew this
0: you knew the story and that's that's really really important and then I was like okay well there's gaps here and there's you know some issues with sentence construction but essentially you can write you know how to put words together it wasn't like you don't know how to write uh, which sometimes you know while people will approach me with projects and I just kind of have to say a nice way to say no because you know you're not you can't afford me to do the kind of work that needs to be done you know Mm -hmm. that's the the nice way of saying it because you really can't write yet let's put a yet there because it doesn't mean you might not learn and so you know so it was like oh this is all fixable and you're responsive we can do this and you were and I think we did I think it's a it's a really unique story. It's funny. I'll tell you one thing, though, because this is a story about coaching. Right? Mm-hmm. In general, I detest stories about coaches. Wow,
1: uh, I didn't know that. That's so funny. Uh,
0: you know, I've had some in the sports writing book because I've always admitted to that some people like things that I don't. So I've put forward stories on coaches that make me want to hold my nose because I think the tendency in much American sports writing is to god up coaches into these, you know, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, where the shadow of Woody Hayes, you know, dripped over everything, pretty horrible person, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
1: traditional coach. You no, know,
0: I've always thought I, I've never really had a particularly good experience with coaches. I guess they're kind of like editors for me. Um, I never felt they really knew what they were doing and they weren't always the nicest people. Um, so Tell me something new about a coach, about coaching, if you're going to do something about a coach. Don't tell me how you're, you know, how much you care for your players and you
1: right. know,
0: how much you give to charity and all this. So I did get over the fact that it was about coaches uh, because it really wasn't. Well, like I said, it was an anti-coaching. coaching.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the name of the book is Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. Out November 1st on Amazon. So when we finished, we finished maybe, I guess, maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago mm-hmm. with, with, you know, I think before the final pass, before your final pass, we both kind of thought, yeah, it's, it's getting pretty close. Um, so w- what are your thoughts about the book now? What do you think, do you think really works now, now that we've done well, so think, much work I think, on it?
0: Uh, you know, one, I think it's just, you nailed the arc of it really, really well um because it 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 does go someplace you know things do happen and also the real challenge in a story about a team because you're essentially writing about a team is you have all these team members and it's really hard in any piece of writing to keep your characters straight to differentiate them Uh, without making it so obvious that you're differentiating them. Uh, You know, I always tell people that like when you first introduce somebody in a story, particularly if they're going to stick around, right? um, Give the reader a hanger, something that they can put an image to. So the next time this name comes up, they have some conception of who this person is. It, It doesn't necessarily need to be visual. It can be, You know how they smelled, or how they or a sound, or something, but Mm -hmm. and then the next time they come in, you get a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that over the course of several appearances, okay, now you have an image that's not necessarily totally a visual image, but you have an image of a character, you have something that's becoming three dimensional. And I thought you did that really well because I wasn't getting confused between the players. And it's funny because your writing in many ways is very spare. Mm-hmm. Um, that works to your benefit because you still give enough, but it's spare and you will, and the reader kind of fills in the gaps.
1: Yeah, give, giving a little bit of detail, but not too much. And like you said, there's, there's a dance between the writer and the reader where you want to give some information and then let the reader use their imagination to, to come. Right. You don't want to, you don't want to be a dictator to the reader either, mm-hmm. you
0: right. know, and and sometimes that's kind of a New Yorker thing, right? Even the New Yorker. And it's like, we're going to tell you exactly what this person looks like and what to think about what they look like and everything. It's like, they give you too much. Uh, mm-hmm. They were doing, they were doing a thing. I it was so funny. They kind of stopped doing it, but um, there was a stretch of four or five years where like every profile, some editor over there must have said, you know, you know, a really good thing to do is to make mention of their shoes. So every person in a story, their shoes would be described. <laughs> it was just, and I think it comes from, you know, Tolstoy or somebody had had made some statement like that, but it was almost comical because I would just read the stories to the first shoe reference and then it was like done, you know. I'm 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 over with this. (laughs) I love it. So you have to be careful that you don't do it the same way all the time.
1: So speaking of books, you have a book out. Best year's best sports writing. Years best
0: sports writing. I mean, I never understood how important the book was to people until probably eight or ten years ago when I started meeting younger writers who would say, Oh my God, I've been reading this my whole life which A, makes me feel good, B, makes me feel really old, you know. but it was, in many cases, they're not even sports writers. It just inspired them to, to wanna read and to wanna write. Fortunately, we were able to switch that up a little bit with this. Rather than a, a, a series editor, there's an advisory board that makes recommendations to the annual editor, which will change every year. And that annual editor, unlike the guest editor of the Old Best American will be much more of a participant. They're not just gonna be able to sit back like some of them have and wait for me to send them 60 or 70 stories and then just pick 25 and that's it. No, we want you to be involved over the course of the year looking at material, soliciting material. So it's hopefully year to year, we'll have more of an individual editor stamp than the other one did. Where I think, in many cases, it was hard mm. to tell, you know, who edited it. It was the same kind of stuff every year.
1: Um, right. So
0: we'll see. Uh, my involvement will end um, after the third edition. I'm done with it, and it's triumphs, and we'll see if it uh, flies on its own. Uh, I think it will, but uh, readers will let us know. You know, it's just gratifying but, to know that the people cared about the book
1: enough best to Amer- <laughs> Best Americans. <laughs> Right. Best American Sports Writing means a lot, meant a lot to a lot of people. As I said, it was one of my introductions to great writing. What does Best American Sports Writing mean to you?
0: You know, it was certainly uh, a great project to be involved in because on a couple of levels. um, Of course, you know, foot in the door in the industry, it gave me like a little bit of a foundation every year because I've been a self-employed freelancer for almost 30 years um, probably would not have happened without that book um, because you know you don't make much money on it you make a little but you know a, a little is a, is a nice start um, people always run it $10,000 a year that's what you made doing best American at a certain point it started out at $7,500 anyway um, but it also I think helped me out because you know, I had to decide what was good, <laughs> you know, this fire hose of material, what was good, and over time, I think I kind of figured out why I liked certain things, and why certain stories worked, um, but at the same time, I tried to keep it very simple. I tried to put myself in the reader's chair, and my, the only criteria I ever came up with in making a selection is, and I've said this thousand times is after reading it once I want to do I want to read it again if I want to read it again so will a reader and I think that's why people have all the books on the shelf (laughs) because they go back to them which is what you want them to do with anything you write you want them to go back because there's enjoyment there you know and most books you don't go back to you know so so that was you know that's kind of what it's meant to me there's been times where I've been kind of uncomfortable with how it became to just be so Glen Stout centric because my name was attached to it for 30 years and people thought I had all this power and authority that I never had. And, you know, that I was being some, you know, maven of taste. And, uh, you know, that was never really the case. I mean, I'd never picked a single story to actually appear in the book um, until this year. Where I made the mm-hmm. final selection myself. The guest editors of The Best American were always welcome to go outside whatever I put forward to them. Some did. Many did not. Some were less engaged, some were more engaged. That's how things go. Uh, in this new iteration of the book, the editor must be <laughs> more engaged. That's right just, right. That's just how it's going to be done.
1: Making the choice. It's interesting, you know, I remember, reading Bill Simmons when he was at ESPN and kind of just becoming well-known or famous. And once or twice a year, he would have um, a long story that, that had an emotional arc to it. And I was like, Oh, this is like, he's trying to get in best American sports writing. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I put, I put forward stories by him a number of times, you know, um, best editor never picked. Him. So, you know, Bill's a, a victim of his own success, I, I guess. But yeah, I, I could spot sometimes stories where people were obviously trying to get in, and um, there's nothing wrong with that. You know,
1: mm, yeah. it's good
0: to have something to aspire to.
1: But what do you? What are the ones that you thought should have gotten more notice and more notoriety?
0: Oh, you mean that didn't
1: make the book? That no, that made the book, but that maybe you know people don't bring up as much. Like, what are some of the? The best stories that that aren't well you know one book.
0: story I, i've always mentioned and it's it's from the very first edition okay which david halberstam edited and to me it's almost like the quintessential best american sports writing story because it was by this woman um from st louis the writer's name was florence shinkle and she was writing for the um, St. Louis Post, Post-Dispatch, I think the Sunday Supplement, the Sunday Magazine, and for younger readers, uh, Sunday newspapers almost all of them used to have Sunday magazines. They were a wonderful place for writing that you didn't get in the newspaper. Anyway, she done did this story, and it was about it was called Flyway Home, and Alex Belth has actually curated it on his uh, the. Thing think he has the stacks. I think he's reprinted it there. Anyway, it's called Fly Away Home. And it was a story about this couple and they raced pigeons. And they were waiting for their pigeons to come home. This elderly couple, they're sitting in lawn chairs, waiting for their pigeons to come home. And nothing really happens in the story, except that it's just wonderfully wrought. You get this couple's entire relationship, not to the pigeons, but to each other, um, while they're just sitting there quietly waiting for their pigeons. And um, And that's almost the perfect story for me because it's like it's about a sport. Who, who cares? I don't care anything about pigeon racing. Um, you know, who does? You know, there's no, you know, pigeon racing illustrated out there. Uh, but it's written so well that you care about this couple. You care about pigeon racing. Uh, And I just think it's beautiful. And uh, the funniest thing is, is back then I would actually often call the writers and let them know that their story was in. And I tracked her down and she just started breaking out laughing because uh, her editor hated the story. She says, my editor hated that story. But uh, I loved it, and and David Halberstam thought it was one of the best stories in the book, too. Now, I think the story that leads off that edition is William Nack's Pure Heart, if I'm not mistaken, which is a complete, utter classic about Secretariat. But this little quiet story, Fly Away Home, uh, that does it for me. And there are stories that, you know... Uh, that I read. I mean, everybody knows J.R. Moringer's "Resurrecting the Champ." Um, there are stories that I can read them now, and they'll still kind of bring a tear to my eye. Uh, David Davis wrote a great story about the Quarry Brothers in boxing um, in one of the earlier editions that I just thought was fabulous, and. Um, you know, I'm kind of surprised people haven't picked up on that a little bit more.
1: And so in the new book, Year's Best Sports Writing, you have a story in there by Kim Cross that has the structure of a palindrome. And you first yeah. introduced me to this story, even before the book came out. That is, that's, I've never seen that structure before. And Kim does a masterful job with it. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that story?
0: Well, Kim is uh... One, she's she's really talented structurally. She wrote a book called What Stands in a Storm about the Tuscaloosa uh, tornadoes. That is a braided story, meaning she's following probably 10 different characters throughout the entire book. And they're perfectly braided together into, so you still feel like you're reading a single narrative. So she's very adept at that. I often tell less experienced writers, you know, don't mess with structure too much. Don't mess with timelines too much. You know, it's, it's hard to do that. Keep it straight. She's more adept at this. And, and when we first started, I started talking to her about that story years ago. When she told me about it. And of course, these two cyclists meet in Kazakhstan going opposite directions. One guy's name is Leon. One guy's name is Noel. It's a palindrome. And they're going opposite directions like the like the sneetches you know except they don't have a standoff they actually you know meet and interact and and then go on their way and i told her then i said you've got to tell this you know use that palindrome do this you know somehow you've got to write the story sort of like a palindrome and um and i would keep needling her about it like you haven't done that story yet you really got to do that story and um and she finally did and uh it's a it's a great story she's also got all these you know easter eggs in it of palindromes that she buried inside that fit in perfectly um she didn't they're not forced in so you don't notice them you know it's it's just really really and i love it when a story can kind of be inventive that way and it also speaks to what we were talking about before is the story will tell you how it should be told. You could have told that story a different way. Um, it would have been a nice story, but I don't think you would have remembered it. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. think this way you kind of, you remember it, it does stand out. And, and you know, she was on the advisory board as well. And uh, that's not why the story's in the book. Uh, it was recognized by uh, an awful lot of people when it first appeared. It appeared in Bicycling Magazine. And, uh, you know, so I, I was, you know, I love it when a story gets something like that. Who
1: Who is on the advisory board?
0: Uh, the advisory board, I have to look so I don't leave anybody out. But uh, Ben Baby, who's a young writer with ESPN, who kind of led the charge on Twitter when the previous series was canceled. So I was like, okay, Ben, I've met Ben before. Great young writer. Uh, Alex Belth, who uh, curates uh, Esquire Classics and uh, longtime acquaintance friend of mine, who's been in the Best American before. Howard Bryant, uh, formerly of ESPN, now of Meadowlark Media, who I've been friends with for close to 25 years and uh, talked to frequently, and uh, former guest editor of uh, Best American. Kim Cross, uh, Roberto Jose Andrade Franco, who's a young writer from El Paso, um, who I've been keeping track of for the last couple of years. He was a finalist for the Jenkins Award last year. Uh, Really, really good young. Well, he's not even that young. Roberto's about 40, but he's a former construction worker who went back to school, got his doctorate. And and he's a wonderful writer and uh, he's just terrific. Mike Mooney of D Magazine, who's one of the best feature writers on the planet and is also one of those people that reads everything and knows everybody. And then Linda Robertson, uh, columnist for the Miami Herald, used to be a sports columnist for the Miami Herald. Uh, She's been in the sports writing book eight or nine times, uh, huge amount of respect for her. And they were all tasked with sending me 20, 30 stories, you know, at least or maybe less if they didn't think of it. And, you know, I paid attention all year, but I looked at every single story they sent. And- uh, How much how certain- much
1: overlap was there in the story? Like, did you get a story three or four times from three, four, well, three yeah, or four that was, people? Well, yeah, that
0: was useful because if yeah. three or four pe- people picked the same story, I'm like, I really got to look at this one because a lot of people think this is really good and people I respect think it's really good. And then it was, it was also interesting just to read stories that I had missed. You know, the first story in the book by Alison Glock, I had not read that. Um,
1: Which story and is that? I think
0: there's probably, I think there's probably six or seven stories in here that I had not read initially mm-hmm. and otherwise wouldn't have come across. Um, because, you know, we have some stories from some relatively obscure places and, uh, but, the, oh, and uh, someone else I forgot that's on the board is Latreya Graham, um, who um, has not been in the book, um, but Latreya has written for me before, and she is smart as a whip, and uh, she's working on a memoir right now, and um, she's had a lot of stuff in Outside Magazine, and some, she's, she's been writing about um, people of color in the outdoors for the last couple of years, uh, in a really interesting way um, one of my favorite uh, she's one of my favorite writers out there right now so I didn't want to leave her out least
1: mm. Any, anybody I didn't
0: skip over anybody else <laughs> <laughs> sorry Latrea.
1: well Glenn as always it's wonderful to just talk and and hear your wisdom and and hear your stories so for the listeners and my BS is... <laughs> and <laughs> all, the, all the rest of are... it no, it's like, it's, you know, as you
0: can tell, I do enjoy uh, kind of talking shop, and I uh, particularly enjoy talking to someone like yourself, who's curious and engaged in this, and I think you did a really good job with the book. Um, I think people will be really surprised. It is such a unique story um, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, when I said that I don't like coaching stories, well, one of the reasons I don't like coaching stories is so many of them are the same story, Right. And I do have to say that after 30 plus years of reading this stuff professionally, this story is unlike any other that I've read. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it, it turns the whole coaching thing on its head, um, which is which is really really interesting, and gets into some, you know, some some interesting spaces uh, about thinking about how we learn, how we compete, how we become teammates all that stuff um, because, you know, in this day and age too, it's somehow, you know, the, everything is commercialized. Everything is professionalized. What's important about sports really um, mm-hmm. not much, but mm-hmm. what is important are relationships you build with other people. And I think that's underscored what you are right.
1: Like. And it's so interesting going back to what you said earlier of the universal kind of start speaking to you. So since I've kind of been in this process of okay, the book's done, been doing some interviews, been been doing some stuff on my podcast like this interview that's related to the book, and I've just come across all these different people and all these different organizations that are doing stuff with positive coaching. That that that's the term, positive coaching. And so this afternoon, I'm interviewing the head coach at Denison, and uh, you know about positive coaching. I talked to the there's a program at the university of Missouri. I interviewed their director. It's a a master's in positive coaching and leadership. Uh Um, So it's just neat. Like there is, and then of course, Ted Lasso being so huge, there is this increasing awareness that our traditional model of coaching isn't the correct one. And there are other ways to coach that are more effective um, and it, you know, in, in, in my case, as I always say, once I changed and, and stopped focusing on the wins uh, on and off the court, I won more than I ever had.
0: Right, right, right. No, it's uh, that, you know, sports can be spooky, too. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. That's the you perfect know, ending.
0: <laughs> sports can be spooky, too. All
1: right, sir. Uh, tell, please tell everybody where they can find you. Where they Online. can find
0: me at uh, Glenn Stout. Dot com that's Glenn with two N's. Uh my website's there. That's how people can get in touch with me. Um, you know, I occasionally take editing projects. I don't really seek them out, but they kind of find me every once in a while. So um, you know, we'll see if I do uh um I don't know what I'm gonna be doing next. I've still got my fingers crossed for Gertrude Etterly uh the movie to film after the first of the year. I uh, got some Positive news on that just the other day, so I'm optimistic. um mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah this really is a this is a book me. you
1: wrote that's that's been optioned that has a star attached, and hopefully, right? Yeah, um, it's we'll the biography
0: of, of Gertrude Etterly, the first woman to swim the English Channel, and uh, I'm still out there shilling Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, which is mm-hmm. behind me on the wall. Yeah, let, actually, let's gangster. let's give Tiger
1: Girl let's give Tiger Girl a little love. So if you can just give a, a, a the the pitch the elevator pitch for well, Tiger it's Girl. this
0: it's their The first gangster couple, they preceded Bonnie and Clyde by about a decade, they were better looking, they were smarter, they made a lot more money and they were utterly forgotten. But for a brief period of time, they were front page news coast to coast. I stumbled across the story 15 years ago and lived in dire fear that somebody else was going to find it and no one else ever did. And I was finally able to publish the book this year to some great critical acclaim. Sales, not so much, but, you know, we'll see. That could still happen. Um, but it was great fun to do. And, uh, you know, I, it's a book I wanted to write for 15 years. So there's something to be one said of, for perseverance.
1: One, one of the reviews said it's so readable, so compulsively readable, right? Going back to what you said earlier, like the keeping the reader engaged. I think the quote yeah, was, I, it's, that's it's, something... it's, it's a getaway car of a book.
0: Yeah, it was the, the one time because writing books, when you're doing it for a living, your one project is over, you're going on to the next one. This is the one time where I really got to stretch out the writing of it. And after it was written, focus on the writing a little bit more than I'd been able to do with other books. Um, So I had more kind of more fun with the writing. Uh, And there were portions I'd been waiting to write for 15 years that I'd wake up at two, three in the morning, Couldn't go back to sleep, because I knew I was finally gonna get to write about this today. So writing can be fun. It's not all agony and angst and all that stuff. But I think, and I think you'll agree, when it's working, it's like, you know, when you're on the court and it's working and you're in the flow, that's what you live for, for. And that can happen when you're writing as well. Doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's timeless. You're, you're out of time it's and you're so in this, cool. other, this other universe. And that's what good books do, too. Mm-hmm. Good stories. They're immersive. They take you out of this space and bring you into another one.
1: So cool. So, so for the holiday shoppers out there, for the readers in your life, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid by Glenn Stout. Uh, Year's Best Sports Writing, edited by Glenn Stout. Zen and, and, the, Zen Art of-
0: and the Art of Basketball, coaching basketball. By, and ben Guest. Odyssey by Ben Guest.
1: It, it, what's, what's funny actually so I talked to Kim Cross the author we mentioned earlier who wrote the the piece about for Bicycling Magazine and she has a book coming out uh, so my book Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball comes out November 1st and then her book comes out November 2nd so we were just sort of saying oh, it's cool like Glenn is, is like the uncle who's got like you know like a niece and a nephew, you know, being born one day apart or something. Um, well, it's really so. fun to
0: see people that I've worked with go on to like, you know, there's been like about a dozen people who I worked with who have gone on to do their first book. And, um, you know, some of them are making a lot more money than I am. Uh, most of them are making a lot more, <laughs> more money than I am now. But, but, you know, that's the fun part to see people's careers kind of, mm-hmm. you know, go on and that, that hopefully they got something from Working with me, and hopefully they're working with other people, and you know, um, kind of sharing some of the tactics and approaches um, that I did. It, I know some have, and, and that's gratifying, you know, because I'm about done, quite frankly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'll do another book. I keep telling everybody, I don't know if I'll do another book. I might be done, but we'll see. Mm. Um,
1: well, i we, we'll see, but but certainly your lessons resonate with me i I hope to use you again and or engage with you again for editing and but but most importantly your your lessons uh like i said it was a master class in narrative nonfiction. so thank you very much it's really gratifying
0: to hear when somebody uh, gets it and and thinks that all my yammering has some use use, use and value rather than you know as my daughter said he just talks on the phone you know
1: (laughs) all right sir thank you very much that's my interview with Glenn Stout. You can find all of my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. That's my weekly free email newsletter where usually I have a post each week about the writing or publishing process and an interview like this one with an interesting person. And my book, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, comes out on Amazon as ebook, paperback, and hardcover November 1st please consider picking that up. Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball comes out November 1st. Have a great day.